everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. My name is Smriti Mehta, and joining me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. Paul, how are you doing? I am well. I have not been sleeping very much. Um, oh, yeah. Because of Hugo. That's going to last for some time, right? Uh, but it's balancing right. out because I'm also not working very much. So, you know, <laughs> it's like uh, kind of balanced out. Um, but yeah, no, things are good. Things are good. How are you? Yeah, you know, this is the first week of the semester. It's, you know, uh, I wasn't looking forward to a semester for the first time in my whole entire life because I just had way too much that I couldn't finish. But, you know, starting a new semester always puts me in a good mood. It's um, I'm getting more like social contact with people. So that's very nice. Um, speaking of which, like we have a guest today with us, which we're very excited about. So today we're joined by Don Moore, who's a professor um, here at Berkeley at the Haas School of Business um, in the management of organizations um, area branch. Um, who, Group, yes. <laughs> the management, the Moore's group, yes. Um, he's a, he mainly does research on confidence and overconfidence. Um, and Don, um, welcome, first of all. Thank it's you. so great to have you. It is so um, great to be with you and <laughs> such an honor. I have enjoyed listening to your podcast so much. Oh, thank you. You're thank too you. kind. Yeah, I, I, you recommended it to people. So we, yeah, we have Journal Club um, every week. So we get to see Don. And Don, Don says nice things about our podcast there too. So we appreciate it. So Don... Let me just start out by saying, from the time that I have met you, I have always thought that you just seem way too nice to be at a business school. <laughs> uh, thanks, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> you're saying so, I, I don't I'm, fit in. I'm sort of a weirdo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's I, I, yeah, I, that, that's been my impression. Way too nice. <laughs> so, in that note, like, I do want to ask, like, why did you sell your soul? Like, how did you how did you end up at a business school? And we also want to talk about, I mean, you sort of um, have characterized yourself, um, you know, as Leif does, as a hawk, right? Somebody that, that's into open science um, and, you know, improving science. So can you just, like, walk us through, yeah, how you got to where you are and how you got into open science? Wow. Well, so I, I started out uh, with the best of intentions as a psychology major in undergrad, when I began, I actually thought I wanted to be the kind of psychologist who actually helps people. I wanted to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. And then my freshman year, I took introduction to psychology and read about the studies of the effectiveness of therapy or mm -hmm. lack thereof and decided that I couldn't do that. And so uh, stuck with my psych major because I uh, saw it as the most interesting and most important thing that I could be studying, but wasn't sure what I was going to do professionally. And then my junior year, I took economics and decided that money did make the world go round and maybe I was a budding <laughs> business person. And um, when I graduated, I fled to the business world ready to escape what I felt were the arbitrary performance standards in academia where whether you get an A or your paper gets published is just about whether your instructor or the journal reviewer likes it. And I wanted to go to corporate America where the almighty dollar ruled and it wasn't some arbitrary subjective standard whether you succeeded or failed. It was the objective benchmark of whether you were actually succeeding at making money. Hmm. Well, my simplified imagination of the clear performance standards in corporate America 
crashed on the sharp rocks of reality as soon as I got there. So, first of all, the work was awful. It was stultifyingly dull and soul-crushing. What was I your hated role? it what? from the... Inf- who, who, oh, you'll understand as soon as I... Tell. I worked for an industrial <laughs> supply company. Oh. Yeah, I was a buyer in purchasing responsible for mm. um, fabrics, cork, and felt, <laughs> magnets, <laughs> machine mounting and leveling... And some other stupid category. I think you're just describing the remember. office. This is, not, this is not your life. This is... Oh, God. <laughs> and not only that, not only was the work boring and utterly unimportant, but the company had no idea hmm. how I was performing, hmm. whether how much I was contributing to the bottom line, or even whether I was enhancing or undermining the performance of those around me. Hmm. What could they tell? They could tell how long I spent at the office and whether I dressed in the right kind of suits. Mm. Wow. That's really um, interesting. Uh, I I used to be in a band and and one of the band members was in a similar kind of position. He was technically managing a call center, but I sort of, I really tried to push him one day of like, no, but what do you, what do you actually do? (laughs) And he, he, like he eventually just owned up and said like, like I don't really do anything like I it's just this position like it's kind of an admin oversight that I even exist and I don't even really have to it's amazing though because um, I often do have that thought that like yeah academia it's all like smoke and mirrors and just um, yeah. in the business world you're at I least mean, accountable to the bottom line like businesses can't survive unless but yeah um, it's not that I survived two clearly. years and then came ran screaming back to the ivory tower and am grateful every day that there are clear performance standards. So relative to the business world, there are clear performance standards. If I publish my papers in good journals and if I get good ratings for my classes, my job is secure. And this is going to get us to the, to the question that you invited me to, to talk more about Smedia and that is yeah. like how I got into open science. I love the fact that my number one job in my research and in my teaching is to honor the truth Mm. that our jobs as academics is to investigate, document and report the truth. Now, that's really hard and we fall short of that lofty ideal in so many ways. But in the business world, Often your job is to make someone happy or to make money, even Mm. when that involves Mm. lying to them or fooling them or tricking them into buying some product that they don't need. By comparison, our mission in academia is uh, so much more noble and um, it's so much easier to feel good about getting better at delivering what we're supposed to accomplish. Yeah, that's a great point. Like I worked in retail for some time and it does feel very icky. You know, you're trying to get people to buy things that they most likely don't. They definitely don't need a lot of the stuff. And it's just like, mm, not great. Yeah. And I was recently talking to somebody. Um, so when I was about like five or six years old, my grandfather told me that I should be a lawyer because I have, that's how long I've like liked to have debates. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, you know, and I chose to be a scientist instead, right? Because both people look at evidence and try to get at evidence, right? But for one, it's like 
proving a point or arguing for a case and for one it's like trying to get to the truth mm -hmm. so i'm with you there don um that's wonderful yeah and we appreciate all your efforts yeah i'm taking a class with you this semester on reproducibility um which, which Paul took two to, years ago which Paul took, yeah. it last time yeah yeah yep. actually one of our listeners emailed me because apparently people at other institutions are able to access this class now <laughs> well the class is um not the same as it was two years ago right we're not going to do it in person and so leif and i thought what the hell as long as we're doing it all online, see if anyone wants to join us. So yes, we are being joined by um, doctoral students in Boston and in Melbourne and uh, Utah and Alabama from all over. And Davis. That's, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Very exciting. I'm very impressed. You almost said Melbourne correctly. There. <laughs> I knew you were going to press um, me for that. <laughs> uh, is it too late for... Um, because there might be people that listen to this that want to sign up. Is it too late for more students to join? Okay, so as you recall, there's um, uh, it's a real commitment, this mm -hmm. class. So uh, we're all joining forces in this replication project, and all the students in the class mm -hmm. have a study that they have to replicate. And there, there's a real risk Mm. with accepting auditors mm. so if mm. someone says yeah that sounds like fun i'll sign up mm. and then a month in after they realize what a pain it's going to be to run this replication mm. if they stop showing up then we're in trouble mm. right so um we the this the people from other institutions who've signed up all have some connection mm. that um, gives us confidence they're actually going to stick with it. Okay. Like, their advisor will be annoyed at them if we're annoyed at their advisor because okay. they said they were committing to it and then they bail out. Okay. Uh, so um, uh, we're, we're going to be uh, cautious in casting the net too wide. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, um, so tell us a bit more about how you got involved in the open science movement. Because um, I think, like, I mean... This is how I see you. Maybe it's not how you see yourself, but ever since I got to Berkeley, it's Don and Leif are the they're the open <laughs> science guys over at Haas. Um, and you know, you have this this journal club, and you guys talk a lot about um, problems with the way research is typically done and stuff like that. And you you know, you're a big proponent. Yeah, you're teaching this class now. You're opening this class to other people, but I. Yeah, I mean, this stuff isn't that old. So I guess I'm curious to hear your journey with it and how you, um, yeah, how it came to be on your radar, how you came to be so passionate about it. I, I guess I would trace my commitment to open science to the same motivation that drew me back to academia, and that is m being inspired by the quest for truth. At that point, did you, kind science. Of, did you kind of think it was all true when you came back to academia? Because I guess like that is pretty much how we used to be taught it, right? Oh, if it's in a textbook. It's true. They did a study. Look at that. Their p-value is below 0.05. <laughs> like, obviously, it's true. So like when, yeah, like... Were you always like super skeptical of the vast, the majority of the literature, or did that did that sort of develop over time? I, I uh, think I earned my skepticism the hard way, hmm. um, seeing how often studies failed, 
um, trying to replicate other studies and seeing that they've failed, trying to build on others' work and seeing how hard it was to replicate published results, seeing the ways in which a lot of standard practices in academia really didn't follow the good uh, the good standards that we were taught in class. Hmm. I have a, a vivid and scarring memory from graduate school where um, mostly what I knew about research practice came from taking classes where professors talked about the way it was supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. And when I had worked on a project which had collected a whole bunch of costly data and our original plan for how to analyze it didn't quite turn out, and I came back to the faculty working on the project and was like, eh, ain't nothing there. <laughs> One of them sat down with me at the computer hmm. and said, literally, I'm going to pull back the curtain now and show you how it's done. Hmm. And we proceeded to p-hack our way to a result. Wow. Like, okay, the scale, if we take drop these items that don't correlate with the dependent variable, how does it look? Oh, 0.05, sweet, mm -hmm. we got a result. Mm -hmm. And um, many of those doubts mm. I silenced, and I'm not proud of that. Mm. But when I came to Haas in 2010 and... Uh, read Leif's, the draft of Leif's uh, false positive psychology paper, mm. my reaction was, this emperor has no clothes. Mm. Mm. That uh, we're in trouble. Like, it, w as soon as this paper gets out there, um, <sighs> how can we keep pretending like what we're doing is okay? It's yeah. not. Right. And if we want what we're doing to matter, if we want our field to have any credibility, we've got to admit the shortcomings in how we've been practicing this science, and we've got to figure out how to do better. Because this stuff matters. It's important. If we're on a quest for the truth, we've got to avoid fooling ourselves. And the open science practices that we've been figuring out, I think, are their great virtue is that they're helpful in fooling ourselves a little bit less. Yeah. Well, as Richard Feynman says, right, the easiest person to fool is yourself. Because uh -huh, right? you want yeah. so much for your theory <laughs> to be true. <laughs> right. And yeah. like, to oh, yeah. have a career and get pubs and <laughs> be able to feed your family and stuff. Uh -huh. so, like, like, yeah, all the all the incentives. Uh, oh, yeah. are aligned um, for people to fool themselves and uh, yeah like it's amazing how little skepticism you often see people uh, attach or treat yeah. treat their own theories with um, yeah. great speaking of theories done can we get to the fun stuff because I do want to talk about confidence because there's so much to talk about so the first question I wanted to ask you is so my interest in, like, I knew I was going to be a social psychologist in my first year of college. Um, my interest really started with um, the social learning theory, or a, a social cognitive theory, as it's now called, from Dr. Alba Vandora. Um, and one of the most important constructs in that theory um, is self-efficacy. 
which is what I wrote my senior thesis on, <laughs> right? Very similar. I mean, there's, first of all, a bazillion self-constructs, right? So that I think that just makes things very complicated. Um, and when I started reading your book, I haven't finished it, but I am like through, like through part of it and I love it. I think it's great. But I Thanks. do notice that there's some conflation. Like it, to me, it seemed like some of the things you were, the way you're de- describing self-confidence seemed very similar to self-efficacy for me because I remember like having to read like what the difference between self-efficacy was and self-confidence from my thesis and I couldn't figure it out. And I had like a read like five papers to write one sentence. Mm-hmm. And the difference to me at the time seemed that the difference between self-efficacy and self-confidence is that self-efficacy has a predictive component and is more task-specific, right? So it's domain-specific. But in your like research and the way you talk about it, it seems like there is that predictive component, right? Overestimation, um, or you know, and so I'm just curious. Or even at some point, um, I heard you on some podcast talking about like optimism, um, or even things like yeah, self-esteem. So I'm curious, like, how do you? separate out these constructs uh, that are so similar to each other and do you think it's important to separate them out uh so the question you raise is is in many ways uh profoundly important for the way that we uh, write up and present our research in journals like to for to persuade reviewers that are written work makes some contribution to the existing literature we've got to explain how it's different from what's before and mm, how right. um, the term we're we the term we've made up is really not at all like any of that stuff that anyone else has ever written about <laughs> right um but i think that there are lots of ways in which concepts like confidence and self-efficacy and optimism bleed into one another, certainly in the ways that most ordinary people think about them. So um, I will enthusiastically endorse the value of disambiguating concepts um, when that helps you clarify um, between uh, related but different things. Uh, right. But I'm not so uh, enthusiastic Coming. about coming up with lots of different terms to, to describe the same thing. Right. So um, in, in my work, I have tried to disambiguate things that, that, that I think are different and that are often confused. Um, so uh, I try to distinguish overestimation from overplacement, from overprecision at the same time admitting the many circumstances in which they are intimately related to one another um but also sorry, the, for people yeah. sorry for people who may not know would you mind just like telling us i know you i'm sure you've done this like 1500 times but you know, uh over yeah. overestimation is thinking that you're better than you are overplacement is the exaggerated belief that you're better than others and over precision is being too sure that you're right and um, often those can manifest very similarly, but they are not the same. And their differences are highlighted uh, by variation, for instance, in task difficulty. On easy tasks, people think they're better than others, but they underestimate their performance. On hard tasks, people think they're worse than others, but they overestimate performance. And you see overprecision across the board on tasks of all sorts of difficulty. And you can be overprecise but underestimate your performance when, for instance, you take a test and you say, I am sure 
I got less than 50% on that test when in fact you got 70% right. Hmm. Yeah. And I also want to say like before I actually opened your book, I honestly did not think that the concept of overconfidence existed in American culture. Like, I'm not even joking. Like, I've been here a decade, and I have never heard, just in, you know, conversation, nobody ever bringing up overconfidence as a bad thing. Despite When I grew up, where I was growing up, we were constantly told not to be overconfident. Our teachers used to call it oversmart. Like, don't be oversmart, right? Don't act like you know more than you do. And it's especially true for math, right? It's like always check your answers, right? It's like in algebra, it's so easy. You just have to do it again. You plug in the numbers and you figure, right? Always check your answers. Like, never be oversmart. Don't be overconfident. We were always told that. I have never heard that ever being talked about in America. And I, the reason I want to bring this up is also because well, I want to talk about your namesake, uh, Donald Trump, because I think like his, like his election to the presidency to me seems like, like sort of like, you know, this is like epitome of like the pathological view that like, I think this culture has about confidence where you just can't possibly have enough of it. Right. Like, cause he just like talks about stuff with this confidence and everybody just buys it up. Oh and so I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. I think Trump embodied all the worst <laughs> aspects, the most pathological, the most delusional, the most perverse, the most odious aspects of American culture. And oh, yeah. yeah, it pained me and continues to pain <laughs> me that we share a name. But yes, yeah. his the, the fact that he was able to fool so many supporters and earn credibility where it was all talk and bluster and lies. Yeah. And even if you look at his the track record of business success, mostly he had one bankruptcy after another and lots of evidence that most of his businesses mostly lost money and he was rescued again and again by his father yeah. and his inheritance. That he had, that a lot of the people who said, who voted for him in 2016 said, well, he's a successful businessman, so he figured he could do a good job as president. Ah! Um, <laughs> there, it, that captures a dysfunctional dynamic when it comes to um, would-be leaders' expression of confidence. So in, in my book, I come down pretty hard in recommending good calibration. That's... Mm -hmm. The, the meaning of the title. So the title, Perfectly Confident, um, captures both the dysfunctional way that some people talk about confidence, like you want to be completely confident. That is the con type of confidence I discourage in the book. Instead, I encourage people to be well calibrated, to be accurate in their beliefs. But the challenge to that advice comes in the domain of leadership or it's easy to think of examples like Donald Trump, where people get away with delusional overconfidence when expressed to others and earns credibility from those who have a hard time assessing whether the confidence they see manifested in the would-be leader is delusion or accuracy. So that is, whether, whether it's justified or not. Hmm. Are there a lot of situations in life where y you like it benefits you to be confident, but you don't you don't really have much good data to like 
there's no way to be well calibrated, but it's still beneficial to approach the situation with confidence regardless. Um, uh, I'd love to hear an example if you've got one in mind. I will agree that it is often difficult to figure out what good calibration well, would look like, but go ahead. The, 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 actually, the example I was thinking of was dating. So, like, <laughs> you know, guys, at least when I was young and in the dating game, you know, guys are often told, it's all about confidence, mate. Like, you got to <laughs> just act confident. Women are attracted to confidence. You know, you got to shoot your shot. You got to just, you got to just go for it. And, you know, I, I would say more or less my experience bears that out. Uh, definitely, I think... You ha you have more success in the dating game if you approach it with confidence. Because uh, um, people love dating men who are arrogant jerks and sure <laughs> that they're the best. Well, no, no, so Don. I, I think I, I, I actually a, think. Go go, Shmurdy. I actually think this brings up an important point, which is that the way I think lay people think about confidence is different than the way you talk about confidence and the way you describe confidence. Because the way you talk about confidence, it seems very cognitive, right? What, what predictions are you making? Are you overestimating? Do you think you're right? It's all very inter intrapersonal whereas i think when most people think about confidence they don't they think is the person how is their handshake why are they making eye contact are they standing up straight you know are they speaking with with confidence it's a lot of these like when people talk about confidence they're talking about i think these sort of interpersonal cues that they get from others yes and that gets exactly at the challenge that paul posed me with and that is whether you can tell whether it's overconfidence so I'm fat. My research is is, is uh, particularly focused on overconfidence. I'm fascinated by circumstances in which we can compare the confidence someone has, their beliefs, their self-efficacy, with reality. Right. Yeah. If there's no reality to compare their beliefs to, then I I can't hmm. I can't say whether they're confident, overconfident, or underconfident. And so I, I find those circumstances much less interesting mm -hmm. to study. Mm -hmm. Paul, if the advice that you find compelling, that it's good to be confident on the dating scene, if what that message is, is you should feel good about yourself, you're actually pretty healthy, <laughs> normal, mostly sane, <laughs> Um, you haven't committed a lot of crimes recently. Mm -hmm. You're unlikely to murder your dating partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, be you can feel in your skin. Yeah, yeah you can Just feel be. pretty good about yourself. <laughs> and um, I do think that underconfidence is a real problem, even here in the U.S. That there, it's easy to document circumstances in which people feel less capable than they are, or less capable than others. The imposter syndrome is a real thing, and. I think it is. There's a, a, a an unfortunately wide consensus in the literature that most people are overconfident most about most things most of the time. That is not true, and it's certainly not true in Australia and India, where the tall poppy gets cut down. It, oh, it's common. You you know about that? <laughs> uh, you, you bet you, man. Oh my god! I've had, I, I, I was the tall poppy in Sydney, and I got cut down. Oh. Uh, 
So oh. uh, I think underconfidence is a real thing, and getting people to better calibrate their confidence to appreciate their virtues and their strengths, to recognize that a hard task is hard for everybody, and they aren't necessarily worse than others. That getting people better calibrated is a good thing, and often that means bringing their confidence up. That's mm. really interesting because I, yeah, I think it, like in the in the dating game, it's hard to say what objective reality you would calibrate something on. I guess you could imagine somebody who's yeah. been rejected 99 times out of 100 of the last uh, overtures that they've made on Tinder, and it's like, oh, maybe you need to lower your standards a bit or something like that. But then it, I could imagine somebody having a healthy attitude about that, like just if they honestly didn't mind that and they were like, ah, oh, they're, all, they're all missing out, I'm awesome. <laughs> like they're all, and, and it might, another example is, I mean, I had a um, short-lived music career before coming back to academia and, um, you know, like confidence is a big thing, like because music's a very, you know, subjective art form and, and like I, I think I, I feel like most musicians are somewhat overconfident in, in, in the sense that they are like really like in love with their their own their own work of what they've done and it, i think it's very easy when you're making music because you can only listen to one song at, at at a time you can't listen to two songs at a time so you really can't compare your music with somebody else's music and if you're making a song and you're listening to it and you're enjoying it i just think it's very easy for people to sort of fool themselves that they've compose some masterpiece and and it's uh, it's absolutely brilliant because yeah there's not much objective truth about that either you do see some horrible cases of overconfidence like some of those kids that apply for american idol and then they're just (laughs) but they're terrible but you know they they don't know that they're they're terrible and then the whole nation is laughing at them at the same time you really can't make it in the music industry without yeah, being very confident. confident and like without like somebody because no but there's no artist that everybody likes right so like somebody's going to tell you that you suck eventually and if you don't have it in yourself to just be like well you're wrong because i'm awesome um right. and i'm going to be a star like yeah people you you can't make it so yeah i don't know it's uh can I, very can double-edged I add sword. To that? can i also add to that i think that's true to a certain extent in academia as well Right. Like I when I started grad school, there was this feeling that I got that, well, the more you do science, the more you realize that we don't know much. Right. So there's a sense of like, we don't really know what we're doing. We don't really know what's right. It's so complicated. But then to a certain extent, as an academic, it felt like you kind of had to you had to at some point realize, well, but I do know more than most people about this stuff. And so you do like I'm like, okay, I probably do need to be more confident. So, so, so yeah, it's a weird balance. I love the challenges that you've posed me with (laughs) and the context in which I've thought about these challenges most is entrepreneurship. So I get some pushback from my students on the subject of entrepreneurship. So I'm going to explore that example a little bit and then try to bring that back to music and academia. If you survey entrepreneurs about their chances of success, you get what looks like delusional overconfidence Hmm. you know perfectly well that like 80 percent of startups are going to go belly up within five years Hmm. but if you talk to founders at the start of the venture they'll tell you that on average they'll give themselves like 90 100 percent chance of success Hmm. 
So what's going on there? Well, in part, entrepreneurs do get the message from lots of would-be advisors, including venture capitalists, you got to believe in yourself if you're going to attract investors or backers or employees or customers. You've got to be your greatest cheerleader. And it is also the case that well-calibrated people who believe, who look at the odds and see the high probability of failure and think, forget that, I'm going to keep my day job, Mm. they don't enter. Mm. Mm. It's those who persist who are in the sample of entrepreneurs answering these questions. Mm. So you got a real selection problem. And you can't conclude from just sampling the most confident ones, Mm. especially if they've had their confidence souped up by motivational speakers and VCs who have told them they've got to um, express tremendous amounts of confidence. By sampling them, you can't conclude that the population, that people on average are overconfident or that they're overplacing their probabilities of success. Okay, so musicians similarly pursue... If you if you look at those who have pursued a musical career, like those are the ones who actually think they've got what it takes. Mm. Who goes on American Idol? Those who think they're actually good enough mm. to compete on the show. So you got a selection problem there, and it's also the case that they pick the music that they love the most, mm. and if they're tastes are idiosyncratic that might be a failure to appreciate the degree to which their tastes are generalizable but that's not quite the same thing as being uh overconfident necessarily now when you come to the question of whether that commercial success will follow there all of a sudden you have an objective performance standard and you can start talking about uh overconfidence uh when I'm giving advice to would-be entrepreneurs or would-be musicians. I will say, uh, it's great that you're passionate about this. And with musicians in particular, it can bring you enormous joy. Sorry, that, that sounds so patronizing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then it gets worse. Like, don't, don't quit your day job. Don't. Uh, d- just because you love the music you're producing, don't assume you can, you can make a career at it. Look at the, look at the base rate and right. make some sensible objective judgment about your actual probability of getting rich doing this. Right. It's done it's it's great to... that you're passionate about this research. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's what I say to my PhD students too. It's great. But I mean I guess it's it speaks great. a little bit about like the objective standards you talk about. I mean are they really objective, right? So who who ends up, you know, making it big in the music industry? I mean a lot of it probably is just like luck and chance and you end up at the right place at the right time right so i um yeah it's interesting so i uh studied music um at uh box hill tafe in melbourne shout out to box hill tafe anyway one person in my course like went on to like achieve kind of Mm. fame and fortune and i i've always been very interested in this because she was um she was very very confident but not in a like not in a very extroverted like you didn't really realize that 
unless you actually spent time talking to her and then you could like dig in and like you hit this kind of you, whoa like you really well you think you're just better than all, like all of us here, don't you? Like, and kind of like yeah like there was this yeah, she, really interesting. So her, you can look up her but music. But you think so it she, was well calibrated, like she had. I don't like it was. I don't know. She because she she had a very interesting voice, and she wrote pretty like simple songs, but they were just catchy and effective. And I, I like it was just fascinating to me that she, out of everybody in that course, because she wasn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think she was the most talented, like, or really like the hardest worker or anything like that i think she was just kind of smarter in some ways but anyway you can look her up she changed her name to gosling and she like had some like pretty big like hit songs in australia um but anyway yeah like just a just an anecdote don't know exactly where (laughs) where so i i I I, I want to take that someplace if i may so what you observe there a correlation between confidence and success Mm is actually supported by massive quantities of empirical research. Mm. If you Mm. correlate people's beliefs about performance with their actual performance, what you see is that there are robust correlations Mm. in politics. The more confident candidates are more likely to win in music, in athletics. The more confident athletes are more likely to win does it follow from that, that their confidence led to their success? Mm. Mm. No, there's no experimental manipulation of their confidence, right? Mm. If they have any clue about how good they are, then we should expect there to be a correlation Mm. to prove that the confidence was what got them successful. What you need is an exogenous manipulation of confidence. Mm. That's hard to do. I've tried to do that in a number of studies, and there's lots of grounds to criticize all my lame attempts as being pale comparisons of the real sort of confidence that drives the commitment of uh, musicians or athletes or entrepreneurs. But in all of those attempts, we attempted to induce people to be either high or low confidence and then observe their performance on a variety of tasks. Hmm. And although the participants in our studies and observers from the same population who we explained the experimental paradigm to and invited to bet on whether those in the high or low confidence condition Mm. would perform better on the task, in none of those studies did we actually find an effect of our confidence manipulations. That's fascinating. Even though our participants thought that it would help, that more confidence would be better. So, So, sorry, Samrini, can I just quickly ask? Sure. So... I mean, it's such a uh, compelling hypothesis that the confidence does have some causal effect. Like, I get the methodological problem of like, well, how do we, how do we manipulate this? Uh, what's the exogenous manipulation? And I, I totally get the reverse causation confound. But it's also really hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that confidence itself doesn't have some doesn't have some causal effect. So, do you? Like, are you officially agnostic about that? Or like, there have to be some circumstances in life where it does have an effect, Mm. where your confidence gives you the courage to enter a competition that you're actually good enough to win, Mm. for Mm. instance. Mm. Uh, But in everyday life, where we observe a strong correlation between confidence and performance, often because the competitors know how good they are and the good ones are more confident for good reason. 
in real life, it is easy for us to mistake correlation for causation. So I think our everyday experience can be a misleading guide on this one. So here I'll actually bring things back to self-efficacy because this is something I struggle with when I was like thinking about self-efficacy because it's very, right? It shows that the correlation shows up there too, right? So for, I mainly study like academic performance. Students who have higher self-efficacy, academic self-efficacy tend to have higher GPAs. It's just, you know, sort of you see it across the board, right? I've seen it in my data. You see it um, all over. But it's always a question, right? Is it is it the fact that having better perform like having a higher self-efficacy leads you to have a higher gp or is it that just like doing well leads you to develop a higher sense of efficacy at the specific task right and i think what i might suspect is happening is that in the real world right i think i think it's probably a cyclical process right it but it goes both ways right you sort of realize that you have aptitude for something you put in more time and effort you end up developing more confidence and that also means that you end up doing better but I'm not sure if you can, if those things can play out as much in like a task where you're just bringing somebody into the lab and having them do like a, you know, squeeze this thing, right? Because I think for those, for that causal effect to really pan out of like your confidence leading to actual performance, I think it probably has to happen over a longer period of time where, where it's changing your behavior to you're like, okay, yeah, I'm confident I can do well in graduate school. So I'm coming in, I'm putting in all this effort. I'm going to, you know, do my work and all of this stuff. And over time, I'm able to develop that confidence. So, no matter how many studies I try to conduct to test mm. this, I will always be vulnerable to the complaint. Yeah, but you didn't pick the right one. Or, <laughs> you know, there are other circumstances in which confidence right. does actually enhance performance. And I, I can't deny that. It's, right. There may be, there, there probably are such circumstances. And it's also probably the case that there are circumstances where the opposite could be true, right? The students in my class who are most sure that they're going to ace the exam and who therefore don't study are not those who get the best grades. When performance depends on effort, being too confident can lead you to do worse. Yeah, like I said, with math, people who don't check their answers because uh-huh. they're too confident. Yeah, <laughs> they're doing much worse, I'm sure. Uh, um, that was me it, all through my schooling. <laughs> I always would get like one wrong and I could just never bring myself to go through and check it all because I was like, well, Awful. yeah, in the past I always got one wrong, but they, like I clearly nailed this one. Like that, <laughs> yeah. You were over precise. Mm-hmm. Too yeah. sure. But you, uh, but you do do mention that the gender difference. You don't see a lot of gender differences in your work, but the, except for overplacement, right? Which is this exaggerated view that you're better than other people. Which reminds me of being in a Ipsor talk with Paul one time, where he said, "I'm pretty sure I'm the only person in this whole room that knows how to do this analysis," and I just couldn't. I was like, "Whoa!" Like the room was, had to be like hey, not very Australian of you, Paul. 50 people what? and I was just like yeah I would, I would never ever never even if I was like I would that would never cross my mind Smitty. a thought like that okay a C- couple of things <laughs> I, I did flee Australia Don to the west coast of the United States so I'm like a refugee a tall puppy syndrome refugee second, secondly well. I totally stand by that, Smriti, because it was this, <laughs> no, no. He, it was an obscure instrumental variable analysis. Uh, this guy was presenting to a room full of psychologists. Psychologists don't use instrumental variables as a but rule. How can I, you be sure? I knew about it because I had sort of taken these causal inference classes in political science. Well, and I said I was. I said I was pretty sure, and like. 
I think it was a relatively well calibrated idea like that I had and and yeah maybe I just sounded like an overconfident jerk to you but um. I mean I have no doubt that you but I, it's, my point is simply that I, I'm sure there's there, something to that word. You're, you asked about gender differences right yeah so um what's striking about the the research is how pervasive belief is in gender differences in confidence and how weak the empirical evidence is. There are some documented instances. It's mostly overplacement. It seems to be fairly domain dependent. It's not mm. universal. Um, I often have difficulty replicating those effects in my lab. And it's not all that consistent with the stereotype. So the stereotype is that men think they know everything, that they are over-precise in their judgment. They won't ask for directions. But I know of no credible published claim that men are more over-precise, that they draw um, narrower 90% confidence intervals, or they attach higher probability to their guess on something being within 5% of the truth. Uh-uh. Hmm. Where we're seeing a difference is on overplacement and it's for male stereotype tasks most mm. particularly what about yeah. uh, cultures going back to the yeah. tall puppy syndrome yeah, yeah. so uh um the truth is uh that um i've had difficulty replicating uh, culture differences cultural differences so there are a few published claims of culture differences i have a paper that identifies some culture differences and again there the results don't map neatly onto stereotypes so a number of writers on the subject have suggested that collectivism leads so the culture mm. value of collectivism leads people to be less overconfident. Mm. Oh, it's complicated. So mm -hmm. in, in the study that I ran, we compared uh, Western cultures, the U.S. and the U.K., with China and India. And our Indian respondents were the most overprecise hmm. in our measures. Um, but that didn't line up with the other uh, types of overconfidence. The results were really complicated, and I forget them <laughs> because <laughs> they, they don't map neatly onto stereotypes. Oh. And, and so the, the, that whole experience has made me more skeptical of durable cultural differences being informative. Hmm. Very interesting. Interesting. I mean, Smriti, yeah. you do seem a little overprecise to me, so I guess that, <laughs> that research fits. That, that's a great segue, because the next thing I wanted to ask was, I mean, Don, you've mentioned that, you know, the confidence is more effective when it's backed up by ability, right? That when you can have, when you can show, like, these sort of concrete objective evidence of the fact that you have a, the ability to back up your confidence. Now, what does one do... I mean, there's cultural differences in how comfortable fe people feel about providing evidence of ability, right? Like, I, like even to this day, anytime I'm writing a statement, personal statement, it makes me very uncomfortable. I'm like, you know, like, my ability should reflect on the things I do and how to do, like, to have to, like, explicitly tell people that I've done this and that, like, I just find that very uncomfortable, first of all. And then what do you do? I was recently accused of being overconfident well i was recently asked like why i'm so confident like wh wh what is it like why? so the implication i think was that you know i don't have the ability to back up that confidence and so what do you do when you feel like there's a mismatch between what you think is a well cal calibrated 
confidence from your part, but it's not, you know, visible to other people. Wow. Interesting. So I think that there's so much to recommend good calibration. If what the way you perceive yourself doesn't line up the way with the way that other people see you, they have information that you don't. And it's possible you're right and they're wrong, but it clarifying where the misunderstanding is is likely to be enlightening for you. So uh, if I were giving advice, I would say, um, ask some more questions and figure out where the discrepancy is occurring. Because um, for any of us who want to get better at anything, if you want to get better in the classroom, for instance, getting honest feedback from your students about the ways in which your teaching either succeeded or failed at getting them to understand the concept, man, that sort of feedback is essential for getting better in the classroom, in the bedroom, in <laughs> your all sorts of domains. Right. Yeah, I agree. I got the feedback that I'm not open to feedback. So I asked for feedback and then I didn't get any feedback in return. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a tough one to solve. <laughs> but but what do you do like when there might be differences in how comfortable people feel providing the kind of objective evidence? Yeah. So 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 that's that's an interesting point. Often um we make it hard to for people around us to calibrate their own self-assessments if we fail to provide them with honest feedback. Mm-hmm. And that is a play that is a problem in lots of workplaces and it's a problem yeah. in academia and in PhD programs that um honest critical insightful feedback uh, is provided too rarely, often because people fear the consequences of that sort of honesty. They realize there aren't professional rewards for Mm. actually Mm. um, telling the professor that that he's a jerk. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And the tricky thing with like giving honest feedback is that the other person has to believe that you're giving it from a good place, right? That it's coming with good intentions, Mm -hmm. um, which is hard, which is hard to get across sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. I guess if you reach a certain point in the hierarchy, like if you're a tenured professor, you work mostly with grad students or lower power or like even collaborators of equal or lower power. Like, yeah, at a certain point, your your feedback gets pretty poor quality, right? Like you, you there's a real risk that you, yeah. Well, thank God for a reviewer too. Because that one of the benefits of academia is that we always have the reviewer too to kick us in the teeth and tell us how our precious babies are actually hideously ugly and our ideas are worthless and will never amount to anything. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it fulfills a valuable uh, function. I'm curious to ask about. Um, you know, uh, I I never heard the words imposter syndrome before. Like maybe six seven years ago uh but now like it's all anybody wants to talk about and i i feel like almost people brag about having imposter syndrome in this weird way um what's what are your thoughts like i i had a very cynical take at one point that anybody who says they have imposter syndrome can't actually have it because if you think it through what it means is i have unjustified 
I'm, I have unjustified beliefs that I don't belong and that what makes them unjustified is that I really do belong. So therefore, <laughs> claiming to have imposter syndrome sort of by definition means that you don't really have it because you like, uh-huh. but I don't think it's, I don't think it's... You're can... humble bragging if you talk about the yeah. imposter syndrome you've got. It's the person, the capable person who says I'm not good enough mm. or the... Um, attractive charming person who says i'm not gonna i'll never find anyone who's right for me or who can love me uh they those people have legitimate imposter syndrome but as soon as they acknowledge the fact that they're incorrect Hmm. in their poor in their low estimation of themselves then the the correction is obvious they're actually better Hmm. yeah i like okay so it's possible for there to be a discrepancy in the facts people acknowledge and the, mm. their feelings. Mm. And here, uh, I've, I've struggled to reconcile my research on overconfidence, which always looks to an objective benchmark. Like, how mm. many did you actually get right on that test? Mm-hmm. Or what is the actual probability of success with the thriving and important research literatures in psychology that look at the subjective assessment of performance or or the or prospects for the future so i i had when i was at carnegie mellon i um took mike shire to lunch one of the co-authors of the, the life orientation test one of the most frequently used measures of optimism dispositional optimism and I confessed to him in embarrassment that I couldn't get his measure of optimism to correlate with any of my confidence measures, prospective or retrospective, anything. And his response was, well, I never would have expected it to correlate. To which I was just astonished. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, what the hell does this thing measure if it doesn't measure how, how good you think you are or you're go- how well you're going to perform or your likelihood of success? And upon reflection, I have to admit that Shire's right. His optimism measure captures a feeling that isn't attached to any specific factually falsifiable claim. You can go through life as an optimist, feeling like good things are going to happen to you, even if you think, I'm probably not going to win the lottery the probability I get in a car accident, meh, that's okay. My investments, they're probably going to track the market overall, but I am going to have such a good time doing it. I am so lucky to be alive. I'm so lucky to be born in this day and age. Like you can decide to feel good about your the reality that you acknowledge. Um, on the other hand, it's possible, and we all know people like this, who are in any objective measure fabulously fortunate and successful, right? Hmm. We have colleagues in academia. They are um, brilliant. They are beautiful. They are smart. They're going to achieve great success in their lives, but they go through their lives miserable, complaining about how the field, like most of the research is crap, and I never have any good ideas, 
and I might not get a job, and I can't find anyone to date who's sufficiently interesting, and oh, it's so hard living in the Bay Area because rent is so expensive. Like, there's always something for them to feel bad about, even when by in comparison to most of the people with whom we, sh we share the planet, they're incredibly fortunate. And mm -hmm. so there, there, I think that there's an interesting distinction worth making between how you feel about your life, your optimistic feelings, and the ob objective reality. Yeah, so I had one more question, Don. Um, what, when you are looking for grad students, uh, you know, ceteris paribus, do you want an overconfident grad student or an underconfident grad student? Or are you really, really just trying to find whoever's closest to correctly calibrate it? I'm a fan of good calibration. Yeah. It's easy to list the problems, the mistakes that overconfident grad students make. They mm. commit to too many projects. They make asses of themselves, mm. um, speaking up in, in uh, seminars and pretending like they know stuff that they don't, telling the room they're the only one the who understands some analysis. Uh, and it's easy to specify, it's easy to describe the mistakes that underconfident grad students make. Like, they're afraid to speak up when, in fact, they're smart and well-informed. They are reluctant to to take on projects that they could very well handle. They're not sufficiently ambitious. The best is to have people be well calibrated. And that means being humble enough to acknowledge they need more information and they need to know more about a subject before they register a strong opinion. But to also acknowledge, wait, these professors, they don't know everything. And my opinion on this is just as legitimate as theirs. So... Mm. I might so, as well speak up. Like the entrepreneurs, though, they they probably shouldn't th think they have a very good chance of becoming professors one day, should they? That is an aspect of this job where good calibration is, is really useful. So if you look at the base rate, how many of the people, the smart, talented people coming through this PhD program who actually finish, how many of them get academic jobs? That is really informative. You should inform yourself about that base rate and think about your fallback plans. So if I don't get an academic job, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, when I was coming out of grad school, this is a, a story I tell in, in my book, when I was coming out of grad school, I was uh, terrified that I would not get a job, that I would wind up face down in the gutter, humiliated and uh, embarrassed by having thrown away five years of my life in grad school. And my PhD advisor, Max Bazerman, said, eh, you're probably going to get a job. <laughs> and I said, what if I don't get a job? He said, you're probably going to get a job. Calm down. I said, what if I don't get a job? He said, listen, uh, I will offer you an insurance policy wherein if you buy my policy, I will pay you from, and you don't get a job, I will pay you from my own pocket the market's prevailing wage next year. And I said, okay, how much is this going to cost me? And he said, $5,000. So I went away and did the math. And for that, assuming that I that the, my career after that wouldn't be impaired by having spent a year on, on Max's gravy train uh, and a number of other assumptions that I would actually want to take his money if, it, that, if I didn't get a job and I bought the insurance... Assuming all of that, I would have had to stand a less than 94% chance 
of getting a job on the market. Mm. And having thought through the prospects, I came back to him and said, thanks a lot, but I, I think I'll pass on the insurance. And he responded with a smile and satisfaction and said, see, you also think you're going to get a job. <laughs> um, you got a job. Yeah. Is he still working? Can I, can I take him up? I can't guarantee what uh, premium he would charge you, Paul. Uh, but yes, he, he is uh, still in academia. He's, well, he's a professor at Harvard. I'll tell him that yeah. I know how to do instrumental variable analysis. And <laughs> that, I might take a couple of thousand dollars off the premium. I, no, man, I would, I would take that, that deal for sure. It sounds like... Um, yeah, ninety four percent. Wait, so you basically figured out? Yeah, huh. mm. I think you might well, have been a little Well, but academia is not that at, only. Um, yeah, mm. I think it's so. This points it, uh, to another problem with using real world data to assess overconfidence and underconfidence. Like, uh, if you assess who's confident or who who was overconfident based on who failed and who was underconfident based on who succeeded, then you're, um, you're selecting on the dependent variable in a way that clouds your ability to actually assess what they should have believed ex ante. Mm -hmm. And so um, observational data are often of limited value, um, mm -hmm. which is why I wind up using lots of lab tasks. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's a weird thing in academia too, which is like everybody who, who doesn't get a job kind of makes a decision at some point to stop looking and there's always uh this seeming possibility that if they just had of kept looking kept they trying. would have they would have found something or they they could have um yeah so it's it's yeah, difficult because i mean at, at berkeley for example i don't know I, i'd say like i don't know maybe 50 percent of the grads of the social psych program go into academic jobs but then mm. a lot of the a lot of the other ones don't really try because they, they sort mm -hmm. of get to the end of the program and they know that they're going in a different direction anyway. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I'm... Um, yeah. So what you're talking about is perseverance, right? And it, you mm -hmm. mentioned it on the other podcast about J.K. Rowling, right? You just keep trying and trying and trying and then eventually, if you have the confidence <laughs> to know that you're, you know, meant to do this, then you can persevere. But I think it's more about... It's also about <laughs> interest, right? Like if somebody... Not just confidence, but if you if it's what you really want to do, then I think yes. it makes so know, in the in reality, if you're if Smithy, if what you were just saying was those who persist in pursuing an academic career eventually get an academic job, I will agree because those who persist are the ones who love it enough, right? Who understand their own promise and commitment enough that they really stick with it. It's those who are doubting, like having been in the PhD program, have it, they've had enough of those moments where they think, oh God, is this the right career for me? Like when then they see the opportunity to join the, uh, uh, the um, people operations department at Google, mm. they, they jump. Uh, those of us who realize we could never succeed at an honest job in the real world, and this is the only prospect for us, and stick with a, an academic career, those, those are the ones who uh, do and should uh, wind up getting an academic job. Could not agree more, Don. Could not agree more. <laughs> okay, so I have one last question. Smriti, do you have anything 
I I have one one more thought on that. So there's an alternative interpretation of what you said, and that is it's good to be gritty. You will always Mm -hmm. want to persist. Never give up on your dream. Not never. I would not say never. (laughs) Right, exactly. So the the mountain climbers who are the grittiest and persist, the ones who get summit fever and who insist on pursuing their ambition regardless of the risk those are the ones who wind up dead on the mountain (laughs) right Uh, yeah tomorrow i was like i'm gonna be a ballerina i hope somebody would tell me yeah probably (laughs) not a great idea to spend the rest of your life on that right like just not gonna happen yeah but it it has to be based on reality like you said even with confidence right yep and there are plenty of passionate musicians who love their music who um we can say to I'm glad you're enjoying that music. It's wonderful that it gives you so much pleasure. Don't quit your day job. Hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, like, I, I, I'm so fascinated that you refer to the tall poppy uh, and <laughs> in reference to India and, and Australia. So, like, um, oh. not many Americans, in my experience, have, have heard of this related to Australia, but there is this thing there called that we call the tall poppy syndrome, uh, which hmm. is this idea that... We don't really like people that are kind of overconfident Stuck and up. arrogant and mm-hmm. like really sort of um, believe in themselves. Uh, that makes it sound bad. But like it is a really interesting slight cultural difference. And you mentioned that uh, you, were, you were in Sydney and you mm-hmm. sort of experienced some of this slight different culture. I'm, I'm really curious what, what those experiences were because... I don't know, from my point of view, I come to the States and I, it's something that I find kind of like a bit liberating and charming uh, about the US is that you guys sort of don't cut confident people down as much. You're, you're, like you're more sort of, and I think, <laughs> well, Trump's the, the Trump's the bad side of it, but also like I do think this country nurtures creativity and nurtures entrepreneurship mm. and nurtures like people that just have a dream and want to go for it and uh, like in a way that like australia doesn't to the same extent um and in some ways it's an attractive part of the culture to me like like for example you just see people riding around san francisco in these crazy outfits and they're they're just riding Mm -hmm. some bike that's just decorated and they're playing some music really loud and uh i don't know it kind of like for me it sometimes just makes my day because i look at Mm -hmm. it and i'm just like in Australia, nobody would do that because, like, everybody would be like, oh, still "Pull your head in, mate, you bloody dickhead." Um, and it's just like people just are allowed to like stand out be and be unique yeah. and like in this in this interesting way here. But like, I'm curious what happened in Sydney that uh, introduced <laughs> you to this this concept. Uh, it, it was people talking about the tall poppy syndrome, hmm. um, how the the tall poppy that that stands up gets cut down. Were you being a tall poppy, Don? Uh, uh, perish the thought. <laughs> uh, I, I strive to be well calibrated in all my self-assessments. <laughs> um, I, I think, Paul, you, you have uh, put your finger on something that's important, especially here in California, in Silicon Valley, where uh, there is a great amount of adulation conferred on those that... The, dreamers who pursue their grand idea for a world-changing startup. Mm. And um, 
I think that there are ways in which it's been beneficial, if not to our culture, to our economy. Mm. The dynamism of the entrepreneurial culture in Silicon Valley has paid huge dividends for California and for the nation. But it's a separate question of whether you want those people as your friends Mm. or whether you want to be that person, Mm. right? Mm. Because the... It can be great for the society that lots of people are willing to sink all of their savings Mm. and go into debt and ruin their health and their marriage, uh, trying to make a success of their startup in in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, But if there's an 80% chance that you're going to fail at this venture and in the process, you're going to ruin your credit and your life, hmm. meh. Yeah. Might not be such a good idea. Do you know the Sylvester Stallone story of when he made Rocky? He <laughs> So he was just no. this broke actor. He just had this script, right? He was working on this script. He, um, I think he divorced his wife his wife left him because he wouldn't mm. give up on this dream he had to sell his dog like the, this was like his last friend in the world because he was so broke so he sold his dog how much money did he like, get from selling yeah, his dog yeah. i don't like i mean a hundred bucks or something like that i think the story <laughs> is he later found the guy and had to pay like thousands and thousands of dollars to get the dog back after the movie like made it big and stuff like that so <sighs> That was crazy, right? Like a well-calibrated... Per- is like, what is the chances? Mm. If you're Sylvester Stallone, what is the chances that this script is going to get picked up? You're going to become a Hollywood m- movie star. Like, it's such a low probability... Um, like the the rational person, the good husband, the good dog owner would mm. just be like, oh, I, I guess I just need to give up on this dream. And at the same time, I'm really happy that he didn't because i love that movie like it's one of my it's one of my favorite favorite movies so like yeah it's this i remember i actually like um do you know that movie the pursuit of happiness with will smith mm-hmm. that guy's nuts right like that guy put his that guy like his son ended up sleeping in a bathroom and like i remember watching that with um a, my girlfriend at the time was so inspired by this story and I was just like, wait, wait, what? Like, you're, hang on. Because I was still a musician at that time. And she was oh. constantly t- telling me that I needed to give up music and get a, like, solid <laughs> career. But she found this, that movie so, like, inspiring that he wouldn't mm. give up. He knew. And, like, and I was like, no, he just, he wanted a Ferrari. Like, that was the thing. He saw the guy in the Ferrari and he was willing to, like, make his son homeless to get to when he didn't have to he could have just got a regular everyday job so yeah like i guess this is coming across but i'm kind of torn how i feel about this kind of stuff um like it's almost like we need the dreamers it's good that we we have the dreamers but it's it's kind of pathological on an individual level and in the vast majority of cases it's not going to work out like in like it did for sylvester sloan or in that movie I think so. You're right that um, as quixotic as chasing the dream might be, like there's some something admirable about it. It helps to put putting that that choice in context is greatly facilitated by a simple, rational decision making tool of thinking in terms of expected value. So, yeah. It'd be great if the studio picked up your script. Yeah, it'd be great 
if you had a chart-topping hit, mm-hmm. what is the probability? So you can probably figure out like the neighborhood of what the payoff mm-hmm. would be mm-hmm. financially for that sort of outcome. Mm-hmm. What is the probability? Mm-hmm. Look at the base rate. How often does it happen to people like you? You sell mm-hmm. your dog and you wind up being a big-time star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that often. Mm-hmm. Discipline your dreams with an attempt to calculate their expected value. And you can come to the conclusion, it's the glory would be so magnificent, mm-hmm. it's worth pursuing even though the chance is less than one in a thousand. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But don't lie to yourself mm-hmm. about its likelihood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that anecdote in your book about like how you and your wife decided how to how many guests to invite <laughs> <laughs> using expected values and got you, you got really close. And I was like, this is perfect, but nobody understands probabilities, Don. Okay, people don't understand expected values, and people don't understand probability. It's probably you and two percent of the world that might be able to do that. You can the estimate the likelihood someone's <laughs> going to accept your wedding invitation. It's not a hundred percent. It's yeah. not zero. It's somewhere yeah. in between. I, I would, like. I don't know how many people make those kinds of big decisions, <laughs> like about life and what to do with it based on probabilities. But we can move that direction. I'm for it. Yeah. 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 I'm, my son's going to be, you know, 16 one day. He's going to start a rock band, and I'm going to be like, so, listen, son, calibrate the expected value. <laughs> it's just not going to work at all. <laughs> Send um, it my way. <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell him the same thing I told my, my kid when he started talking about his career in the NBA when he was, you know, playing uh, middle school basketball. I said, it's great that you love playing basketball. It can, it, you can derive a lifetime of pleasure from it, and right. you should keep studying for your math class. Right. <laughs> what am I, what one of my favorite jokes and is that? He's going to be in therapy his whole life. My dad never believed in me. I could have been an NBA player. I was just going to tell my favorite joke, but we can edit this out, which is essentially that, you know, the lottery is essentially like tax on people. Start again, start again. Because there was no pause there to do the editing. (laughs) It's essentially that the lottery is tax on people who are bad at math. (laughs) That's your favorite joke? One of my favorite jokes. I have many. Okay. Yeah. You want to know mine? Yes. Um, why did the Scarecrow win so many awards? Why? He was outstanding in his field. Outstanding? Nice. <laughs> you want to hear mine? Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> what do you do if you see a spaceman? Parking it, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a good one. Okay, yeah. good ending. Sorry. Good ending to the podcast. Yeah, just right. like, we ended up with dad jokes. I yeah. love that. <laughs> hey, I'm a dad now. I get to do it. <laughs> That's true. Both of you are dads. Technically. I feel like, yeah, I feel like a dad joker inside. So <laughs> we're, all, we're all in good company here. Great. You do like paternalistic social policies. So you're a dad. You're a dad. <laughs> anyway. I, okay, great to talk to you, Don. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really Thank fun. you so really much for it. coming on, Don. It was, yeah, it was so a fun. great honor. Yeah. Yes. Right. And yes. I have confidence in yes, your ability to edit me to uh, <laughs> make it entertaining. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, Paul does the editing, so you know we don't have to worry about you know. Yeah, kind there's of, enough confidence there. Kind of a team effort. Okay, have a great weekend. Yeah. All right. Thanks. You, you too. too. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.